Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the weekly podcast where AA members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. Every now and then you meet someone for the first time in an AA meeting who you can just tell is working a good program. My guest on today's show, Susan D., is that kind of person. When she first attended a Tuesday meeting that I've been going to for the past 15 years, she showed up early with the countenance and the confidence of someone who has attended many such meetings. She comfortably introduced herself and was soon chatting among our members who show up early for the fellowship before the meeting. When the originally scheduled leader couldn't make it, the chair asked Susan if she would lead the meeting. She said yes instantly and proceeded to lead a fine discussion, infusing her share with the experience of 19 years sober and plenty of references to the big book. In the following weeks and months, Susan became a regular attendee and participant at that meeting, readily accepting the service commitment of talking with newcomers and others looking for knowledgeable guidance in the program. Susan's story will strike a familiar refrain for many baby boomers who became alcoholics and drug addicts. Dysfunctional home life with alcoholism rife through the family, Susan sought escape through alcohol and drugs and a wild lifestyle common to the late 1960s and 70s. Though a binge drinker, her blackouts shielded her from cognitive awareness of the damage she was doing to her own life. Susan somehow managed to make it to AAA in 1985 and even stayed sober for several years. But her unwillingness to embrace the program had her skating around the periphery where she slipped time and time again. By 2003, she'd finally hit the wall of hopeless despair and abandon with no spiritual armor to soften the impact. But it was the bottom that Susan had to hit in order to survive and later thrive. As you follow Susan's difficult journey from an active alcoholic to recovered alcoholic, you're bound to hear many similarities to your own story, as well as some differences along the way. But once you've heard her entire story, I think you'll land solidly on the similarities of gratitude and humility from which we can all thrive as sober alcoholics. So, please enjoy the next hour of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA sister, Susan D. I'm Susan. I'm an alcoholic. Well, thanks so much for being here on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. I really have enjoyed going to the meetings that you and I have been together. We only recently met, but the really cool thing is I've known your brother since he very first got sober. And you know how you can know people for years and not know anybody in their family? I didn't realize that he had a sister nor did I realize that you were his sister. And so this is such a treat for me to be able to get to, uh, to get to know you a little bit better by virtue of this interview. So again, many thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Well, you know I'm the one who ran away from home. Are you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he stayed, he stayed when you ran? Yes, he stayed when I ran. Uh-huh, yeah. And I, and I did a geographic. Yeah. That's really what it was. Yeah, I'd, like to, I'd like to explore that a little bit more. How long have you been sober, Susan? Uh, my sobriety date is January 12th of 2003. So I just celebrated 19 years. 19 years. Congratulations Thank on you. that. January is always a good time to get sober because new year, new beginnings. 
Um, that's always important. Now, you're living part of the time, I believe, in, in North Carolina, and then you come back to Houston. Just this year. So that's how you now know that my brother has a sister. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I moved to North Carolina in 1997. And I just came back this year, mm -hmm. 2021, to spend part of the year in Houston. I'm a native Houstonian. I grew up here. My family stayed. I ran away. You ran away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what was going on that precipitated that? Why did you run? Well, I was drinking. Yeah. And I got into a relationship, and nobody was acting right. My mm -hmm. family wasn't acting right. So I was like, well, I'm going to turn 40 pretty soon. And if I don't leave before I'm 40, I'll never leave. Mm -hmm. And because I had a partner at the time who was willing to go with me, mm -hmm. it was the easier, softer way than actually being brave enough to go on my own. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. And we were drinking buddies. But as soon as we got to North Carolina, she stopped drinking. So then any, anything that w went wrong, it was my fault. That's convenient. Wasn't it? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, that didn't last very long. Well, where did this <laughs> drinking behavior come from? Is this something that in your family of origin, did, did, did that start off for you there? Or where was that the case? You know, it's interesting. Yes, I, my uh, father was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And... Um, the attitude in my family was, well, it's better if you drink at home mm. so you can learn how to manage your drinking. Mm -hmm. So I can remember being 15, 16 and being offered beer or when I am on my 16th birthday, mm -hmm. I was allowed to go drink in the bar at the Yacht Club. Mm -hmm. That was my first real, oh my God. Uh. <laughs> You would have thought that the hangover and getting ill from that experience would have been enough, but it wasn't. But I didn't drink, uh, really drink through high school. My drinking started in college when, again, it's like if I'm away from my family and I don't have to behave, it's on. Yeah. So that's yeah. basically how I drank through college. Mm -hmm. And I quit when I graduated from college mm -hmm. for two years. And then I made the mistake of I was living in Washington, D.C., and I started graduate school in uh, Baltimore. Mm -hmm. My parents divorced. And being the good codependent, I thought, well, I have to go back to Houston and help my mother. Mm -hmm. Well, my mother didn't need my help. You went anyway? <laughs> but I went anyway. You went anyway. Um, and that's when my drinking, well, I started drinking again instead of being, you know, just an occasional drinker mm -hmm. or when I was socializing with friends. Mm -hmm. I was that's when I started going out to bars. Now, going back to what you said, because that's a, that's a really interesting trajectory, how you stopped after college and you came back while you were in graduate school to, take, to help out your mother. I had started graduate school. I had made plans to return to graduate school. But then I decided, oh, maybe I'll try law school. <laughs> it's not a good idea to be drinking and going to law school. I know it happens all the time. Yeah, in, but... <laughs> fact, <laughs> in fact, if you listen of the 65 people I've interviewed, about a dozen of them are lawyers, yeah. and they tell a lot of the same stories. I was curious about the alcoholism in your family and how that might have predicted your 
starting to drink at, an, at a later age. You said your dad was an alcoholic? My dad was an alcoholic. Was he in recovery? Uh, that's another story. Uh, when I was a senior in college, mm -hmm. uh, we did an intervention. I flew back to Houston. I was going to college out of state. I mm -hmm. flew back. We did the intervention. And uh, he went off to treatment and from there came to my college graduation. Hmm. And uh, I spent part of that summer in Houston, mm -hmm. and he he was in sobriety, you know, working working AA. I moved to Washington D.C., mm -hmm. and then by you know it was it was that thing that a lot of alcoholics do. Mm. Well, I haven't had a drink in yeah, you know, and so at Thanksgiving he was like, well, I could have a, a glass of wine. And by that spring, my mother was like, you're out of here. Wow, that went downhill really quick, didn't <laughs> it? Went, it? it yeah, it progressed really quickly. You were, you were a member of the intervention group that intervened yeah. on your dad. Yeah. You were in college, though, and you had stopped drinking by then? No, not by then, um, but I would get together with my buddies on a weekend, right. and if we were playing cards or shooting yeah. pool, but... I knew I drank too much. Right. So the the thing that's curious to me is you're in an intervention for somebody who's <laughs> drinking too much, who has a problem, and you're sitting there as the person, the budding, the budding alcoholic. The budding alcoholic. alcoholic. What were, I'm curious, what were you thinking during that intervention about your own alcohol use and uh, that well, sort of thing? Oh, well, you see, here's the alcological thinking. Alcological. <laughs> I know I drink too much, but right. I don't drink every day. Mm -hmm. I don't drink with a whole group of people at a bar and come home, you know, or come shit faced. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm dean's list. I'm writing my thesis as mm -hmm. a senior. I'm this, that, and the other thing. I've got this under control. Mm. And then to stop for those two years after college, see. I got this under control. How could I be an alcoholic? When you heard that from your, oh, yeah, I get that. I would assume your dad might have said something similar to that during the intervention. Am I right? He really didn't say a whole lot of anything during the intervention. Was he, was he a functional alcoholic? Was no. he? He wasn't. No. I mean, he had a business. Uh -huh. He represented uh, other companies, and they were starting to cut him off because oh. of his drinking. Okay. So, no, he wasn't functional. He oh. drank every day. Yeah. You know, I can remember some mornings him popping a beer first thing in the mm -hmm. morning. Mm -hmm. And now that I know more about alcoholism, it's like, yeah, that was really bad. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. That's been the case uh, for a number of the people I've interviewed. Having alcoholic parents, either treated or untreated, that decision to allow the kids to drink in the house... I'm curious about that. What what was behind that in your parents' mind? For me, so I would learn how to drink like a lady. And you were going to learn how to drink like a lady from whom? <laughs> your yeah, dad, not exactly. your dad, right? <laughs> my my mom and my dad. Well, my mom was a good co-alcoholic who was a control freak, oh, and yeah. so it was all about, you know. And her belief was. Mm -hmm that she must be doing something wrong if she can't get my dad to stop drinking. Oh, yeah. 
So, you know, when my drinking took off, I got the hairy eyeball look a lot about you're too loud, that means you've been drinking, cut it out. I was a real uptight kid. Yeah. And so if I was kind of loosey-goosey and laughing and being loud, then... It meant you were drinking. There's your sign. Ah, so. There's your sign. Whereas my dad, I mean, he was funny. He had a great sense of humor. Yeah, yeah. Um, But there was a whole stretch where he was just a tyrant. Yeah. And, you know, my older brother and I would joke about we could tell when dad was drinking gin and we're so grateful he had switched bourbon. (laughs) (laughs) because he wasn't as mean. Wasn't as mean. So kind of fast forwarding back to what we were talking about earlier, you get to graduate school, you're drinking on an ongoing basis at that point, or you had cut back. What what did your drinking look like? No, I had, that was during the two years. I started graduate school during the two years that I wasn't drinking. But when I came back to Houston, I started drinking again, and it progressed. Yeah, did you miss it? I mean, when when you stopped for just two years, you stopped on your own for two years, was there anything about the way you were drinking that made you still crave it, or were you able to just stop and move on for a couple of years? I was just able to stop and move on for a couple of years because I think, you know, I was a periodic binge drinker. Uh-huh. So it, it I was not at the point of someone whose disease had progressed to Mm -hmm. what it progressed to eventually for me. So you didn't drink during the two years. Was that drinking ever interrupted until the point at which you came into AA, or was that a steady progression from there? Uh, It was, well, (laughs) the first time I came into AA Uh was in 1984. I got a DWI. I did not take responsibility for that because my passenger threw a beer can out the window. I was driving right in front of a cop. Well, yeah, I was driving, but it was her fault. You know, yeah. by this point, I'm like, oh, no, uh-uh, Mm-mm-mm. finger pointing. Did they do a field sobriety test on you? They did a field sobriety test, actually, and they did a videotape when I <laughs> was hauled into jail. Um, and I ended up hiring, well, my grandfather hired an attorney for me. Mm -hmm. And based on the, we went to trial, Mm -hmm. the lawyer questioned the validity of the sobriety test because I was right on the line from the uh, video. Mm -hmm. The judge dismissed it because I looked sober. (laughs) So you should have gotten cited for littering instead of being pulled over for... A drunk well, driving. she got she got pulled in for PI because she shot off her mouth. Oh, she did. Okay. Oh yeah. So you know it was it was a cluster. So that was that was in '84 that that happened. That was in the fall of '84, and I was working for the adult probation department at the time, and I got laid off. Mm. And then a couple of months later, in April of '85. I got a phone call from my mom that my father had dropped dead. Oh, no. And so I was a mess. And I started, you know, alcohol was my go-to whenever I didn't feel, you know, I was trying to change the way I felt. And I have a history of depression. So, you know, for a depressive to drink alcohol is anyway. In June of 85, I decided I got to do something about my about my drinking. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I had been in therapy, but my therapist was like, well, just cut back. Well, I couldn't cut back. I didn't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. So I went to treatment, same place my dad went. You know, I was an absolute nervous wreck. Huh. And one of the staff from the male side said, oh, I know who you are. You're just, you know, you're just depressed because your father died. So it planted this seed in my, in my alcoholic brain that, well, see there, I'm not really an alcoholic. You're just depressed. I'm just depressed. Yeah. So I'll just stop drinking and things will be great. And, you know, they told me what I needed to do when I got out of treatment. Mm -hmm. And I didn't do it. I mean, I went to AA, I'd go to meetings, but I did not get a sponsor. I did not work the steps. I could talk AA because after all, I got my master's degree in social work. And because I was working for an agency with an alcohol and drug program, I had to get certified yeah. as an alcohol and drug abuse counselor. So how could you be an alcoholic? I had all this knowledge. Well, you know, you read the big book and it tells you that that knowledge avails us nothing. Um, so I stayed dry for about five and a half years. Were you going to AA the whole time? I was in and out, you know, I was going to meetings, but I never worked the program. I didn't do the program. Why were you going to meetings if you weren't working the program? I'm curious. Well, it was, that was the only part of the program I could accept doing. Mm -hmm. Because I looked at those steps and I went, okay, first of all, that God word, yeah. no, we're not going there. Yeah. Uh-uh. Huh. <laughs> even, though, even though I've always had a connection with a higher power, but I fell into the trap of, of theological debate. No, you're, you all are wrong. Or, you know, you're hypocrites. Well, well that's the pot calling the kettle black. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be talking AAA and not doing it. To be talking all these wonderful spiritual, you know, stuff, you know, and not doing it. So I was real good at talking the talk and not walking it, but I would pointed out in other people when I really needed to be dealing with the fact dealing that with, I was doing yeah, it. Yeah, dealing with yourself now. You know, and again, that in the big book, it talks about that. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It does. And so while you were staying dry, yeah. it sounds like so dryety to me instead of sobriety. But yes. So you're, you're staying sober. Were you going to AA? It didn't sound like you were using AA to stay sober. Right. It doesn't look like it doesn't sound like you were actually recovering using AA. No, but, I wasn't. But it was you were still, will. but you were still going. I but would. I was still going. What was there about you know, AA that made you want to keep coming back? I, to be honest with you, it was an ego thing. To be honest with you, it was somehow tied to this idea that I had to present myself in a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was more about reputation. I see, uh-huh, yeah. Um, it, it was just weird. Were there people you were trying to please by going or was it just the airs that you were putting on that you were this sober woman going to AA? Well, I hung out, I hung out at, uh, I, I hung out in gay AA. Yes. And I, and I worked for a gay, mental health agency. Okay. 
So I had uh, something to prove in, uh, as community standing. I see. It was uh -huh. just insane, yeah. you know? But yeah. I was not a well woman yeah. because I was dry, but I wasn't in recovery. So that knowledge, all that knowledge that you had being a social worker and having that master's degree was illusory when it came to actually being able to help yourself. You were the only person you couldn't help at that point, huh? Right, pretty much. That's amazing. Yeah. So this thing kind of progresses then. You're sober for five and a half years. Mm -hmm. what, tripped, what tripped the alcoholism into you drinking again? Uh, two things. One was uh, in 1991, mm -hmm. it was, I got seriously ill and we, the doctor couldn't really figure out what was wrong, um, but it, my, my cognitive stuff mm -hmm. went and uh, I started, I got wasting syndrome mm. um, and I was working with people with AIDS. Mm -hmm. So it was mimicking a lot of that. Yeah. So I got tested, and of course it was negative, of uh -huh. course. And finally, I got a diagnosis of um, chronic fatigue, immune deficiency disorder. Deficiency. Um, so I had to take a leave of absence uh -huh. until I mean, and that's when I really started on antidepressants, and yeah. it was it saved my life. Yeah. Because that mental fog just. Yeah. Dissipated, and I could I could think again. I mean, it got so bad that I could not, I couldn't have a conversation. Yeah. And I would stutter. Mm-hmm. I've never stuttered. Yeah. In my life. Yeah, depression will do that. I, yeah. I, I know. I've I've got clinical depression and been treating it for the last thirty years. I'm sure I've had it my whole life, but it yeah. wasn't until thirty, thirty-five years ago that I finally did something about it. Were you yeah, were you back to drinking before you got diagnosed? No. Okay, so you were still sober when you got diagnosed? I was still sober when I got diagnosed and I was still sober for several months after that. Uh, what tipped the scale was I had the opportunity to go with a friend, go to Europe with a friend. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, that sounds like fun. Mm -hmm. And oh, we're going to Amsterdam? Well, <laughs> you know, maybe I could just do a little bit and when I get back, I'll just stop. Yeah. Let me back up to one thing. I do remember while I was waiting for my results of my HIV test, mm -hmm. and when I finally got them, I was like, I can remember sitting at my desk at work going, I did not get sober to put up with this shit. Mm -hmm. So there was my attitude of, well, life shouldn't have dealt me this. I'm dealing with enough, you know, it was all that self-centeredness. Mm -hmm. um, so when the idea of going to Europe came up, I was like, oh, I, I, I deserve to go and have a good time and I'll just stop when I get back. Sounds like the ulterior motive was built into that yes. one, right? Yeah, it was. Up until that time <laughs> when you were going to AA meetings 
had you not heard your story in there, or had you not heard about someone getting through what you were about to have to go through with the, with the AIDS test and everything else? Well, I heard, uh, yeah, I did hear some of that, but, but from you, my coworkers mostly. Really? Yeah. Okay. And, and, you know, and it was, for me, it was also, it was, I was losing people right and left, oh. and I, it just got to be too much. Yeah, yeah. You know, and add that to the depression, and add that to, you know, yeah. not yeah. having, not having a network within AA, because I just, I went in and shot my mouth off, and I, you know, last person in, first person out, mm -hmm. and it was just for show. It was just, you know. Yeah, although from what I know about, and, and I've had the opportunity to have uh, attended a number of meetings at, at like Lambda and mm -hmm. uh, a couple of my very close friends, in fact, one who was a sober 45 years when he died at the age of 94. That's I think, I think yeah. you know who that is, or you might know who that is, but um, one of the things that, that he always said was, you know, it's hard enough to get sober without all the added grief of losing all your friends, including those who have gotten and have stayed sober. Yeah. So there were a lot of people who were able to stay sober until they died, but yet if you're not there to hear or internalize that message, then you might be next, right? Right. So you go to Europe. So I go to Europe. Yeah. And I have a good time. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I come back, and I was so angry with the person I went with oh, no. that I said, I'll show you, because all of a sudden, I, I had known this person, well, I don't believe you're an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. I don't believe you're an alcoholic. Well, after that trip, she said, yeah, I think you are. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, okay, now I'm really going to show you. <laughs> okay. Oh, my. So you flipped the... Insanity. You flipped, yeah. you flipped the switch in Europe mm -hmm. and brought it back mm -hmm. to the U.S. Mm -hmm. Did you start drinking immediately when you got home? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and I still kept it contained. Yeah. I, so I could maintain that illusion of I've got this under control. Really? Because, you know, again, it's compared to my dad. Yeah. You know, I didn't drink every day. Right. I didn't, you know, all the yets. Yets. Because by the time I came back to AA uh -huh. in 2003, I was drinking every day. I had given up my my um, profession. Uh -huh. I had, you know, I still had a roof over my head and a car mm -hmm. and all that good stuff. Yeah. But I drank every day, and you know, oh well, I don't start drinking till five o'clock. Overlooking the fact that every time I drank, I either blacked out mm -hmm. or passed out. Hmm. I was a blackout drinker. That's scary stuff. While you were a while you were a a binge drinker, you were a blackout drinker as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. At times, not not every time I binged, but yeah. a lot of times. So the difference between Susan that went to Europe and Susan that came back from Europe. Before you went to Europe, you were still going to AA meetings. Mm -hmm. After you got back and you had started drinking again, and you. You continued it on to 
show that other person. Were you going back to AA meetings while you were still drinking? Did nope. any did anybody nope. ever call you or did you ever run into any of the people from the meetings that you were going nope. to? So you had no accountability. That's right. No sponsor. No sponsor. Didn't have friends that I, you mm. know, and then I left I left uh my job with with the counseling center. Mhm. Mm and they all knew I'd started drinking again. No, uh, nobody stepped in to say. Uh, nope. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. I just moved on so well, I could continue to drink. So you could continue to drink. I've always thought, and I've had the opportunity to know a lot of people over the years who uh, either continued to drink or they continued to go to AA without working the steps. And I've always thought that the most miserable place to be in the world is an AA meeting when you see everybody else getting it and getting sober and have living decent lives and you're sitting there still feeling miserable knowing that you're deceiving everybody by still drinking. Yeah. Did you did you get any of that sense when you were back going to AA meetings? When when I finally so how I ended up back in the program. Hmm. Um, I had a friend that I was out drinking with, mm -hmm. and she got her second DWI while I was with her. Um, so she lost her license, and this is not the beer can no, lady. This okay, is, this is a different <laughs> okay. lady. So anyway, she lost her license, and mm -hmm. and of course she was mandated to treatment, and yeah. so I took her to meetings for months. I would sit there, and, and, and so I stopped drinking, you know, in support of her. Mm -hmm. I would take her to meetings. I'd sit there and introduce myself, and I'm an alcoholic, and then I'd go home and drink. So you were taking her to meetings, and you were going home and drinking. Did she know that you were doing that when you got home? Yeah, yeah, and, and so she finally said, I can't hang around with you. So she really wanted to stay sober. She wanted to stay sober. While you wanted to drink... Well, I used 9-11 as an excuse to start drinking again. So you parted ways at that point with her? Yeah, by November we parted ways, yeah. So 9-11 was a reason to continue drinking at that point? Uh, an excuse to relapse. Prior to 9-11, had you been sober? Not very long, like three or four months. Hmm. It, it didn't feel good not to be able to drink. I'm sure I went through withdrawal, and I was still talking program stuff and la, 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 and the penny hadn't dropped. I get it. And I went on drinking even after my friend said, I can't hang out with you. And, it, and I'd start earlier and earlier. Mm -hmm. The beginning of the, what happened at the end of my drinking was I came to Houston mm -hmm. for Christmas. Mm -hmm. I, you know, was doing the usual, I can control this. But I had a head full of AA, and I finally understood. I had that moment of clarity where it was like, I'm not controlling this. It's controlling me hmm. because I want more. I really got it that, you know, given the chance, I would drink more than I did. Was that a circumstantial realization? Was there a certain event that happened that jolted you into that realization, or was it just one day it came to you? It just came to me. It really did. It was uh, because 
my family always celebrated uh, Christmas Eve, mm -hmm. and we had wine, and mm -hmm. you know we'd have a uh, how my family drank. You'd sure. have a you'd have a cocktail before dinner, and then you had wine with dinner, and you might have a cocktail after dinner. Perfect for an alcoholic, right? A perfect for an alcoholic, <laughs> except I wanted to go around and finish everybody's wine. You know? <laughs> That's an alcoholic. I get it. <laughs> so I had that realization, but I, when I came back to Raleigh, the first thing I did, I came in from the airport, I opened up the refrigerator, I grabbed a beer, and I came to as an absolute crying, can't deal with this mess on the 11th of January. That was my last hurrah. And I really ended up being a blackout drinker. Yeah. I don't remember anything. Uh -huh. I really, it's like a bookend. I grab the beer, I'm hanging on to the door out to my garage, just bawling my head off. Mm -hmm. And the friend I had been taking to meetings called to borrow something and I said, do you, are you going to that meet, noon meeting today? Do you, do you think you could get me a, a meeting schedule? And she 12-stepped me. She took me back to my first meeting the following day, my first meeting back with the commitment to, to stay sober and to work the program the way it's laid out. Not my way, because obviously my way didn't work. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I went back, I got a sponsor that night, she put me to work on the steps. Mm -hmm. Here I am all these days at a time later. Did you go back to the same place that you had gone to previously? No, actually I had gone to a, a different place that first meeting back and then I went back to the place I had been, which is now my home group. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, Check out my Big Book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. Must have been interesting to interact with some of the people who had seen you previously. Have you ever gotten any feedback from them about how you looked or acted when you came back? You know, I, I just remember one woman looking at, because I was sitting in the back, shaking and sweating and tying knots in a coffee stirrer. And one of the home group members said, are you okay? And I just had this sense of relief. And I said, well, no, but I'm going to be. So, I mean, they just welcomed me back like, oh, Glad you're back. So no, I don't. I didn't get any feedback about, or you know, it, as as I kept going, you know, it it became my home group. Um, over time, people would say, "I remember when you first came in." I mean, that's kind of how those conversations have gone because they finally we get to the we're able to accept that and. Uh, talk about that mm -hmm. and laugh about that. 
I'm so glad I'm not there anymore. Yeah, I'll bet. And you were just coming off a bender when you went back. Did yeah. you have any withdrawal? Or oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What was that like? Uh, sleep disturbance, sweating, shaking. I shook a lot. You still kept the resolve, though, didn't you? Yeah, I did, because I had surrendered. Because I can remember while I was hanging on to that door in my house, bawling, mm -hmm. there was a little voice in the back of my head that started asking me questions, like, are you willing to get a sponsor? Mm -hmm. Yes. Are you willing to work the steps? Yes. Are you willing to do everything that you weren't willing to do before mm -hmm. in 1985 when you first came around AA? And it was a resounding yes. Because, you know, I knew that if I didn't stop, I was going to die from it. Yeah. And I didn't want that. Yeah, that's a great realization to come to. Yeah. And especially that you were able to get a sponsor your first day back. Yeah. and get to work on the steps. How did she handle that with you? Oh, well, she was old school. And how I ended up with her was um, I went to a meeting. She shared that she had just moved here to North Carolina from out of state and that she was looking for new sponsees. And she was, you know, telling parts of her story. Mm -hmm. And she was laughing about it. And I was just like, that really attracted me. I was like, I so want to laugh again. Because I was just like, I'm never going <laughs> to laugh again. This is so horrible. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and so we met. Well, first of all, she said, call me every night until I tell you you don't have to do that anymore. OK? Uh, we met, and I told her my story, uh -huh. um, and she surprisingly said, well, I don't think we need to work the first three steps. I think you have those, so start on your fourth step. So within my first 60 days, I had completed my uh, fourth step, my first fourth step. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did one in treatment in 1985. Well. <laughs> I was not capable of being completely honest with myself or anybody else. Mm -hmm. So I took that dive. Have you done subsequent fourth steps? I've done subsequent. I've done a lot of spot inventories mm -hmm. because, you know, I was a blackout drinker and I'd forgotten things and things would come up and I'd go, oh, my God, I forgot about that. And so I'd call my sponsor and say, I just remembered this and let's you know. Yeah, that's great when you can have that kind of clarity years later when it, the fog really does start to lift and right. is completely lifted. So you did your fifth step with your sponsor. Yep. And then how, what, was the, what was the pathway through the rest of the steps like? She had me do what the big book suggests, which is, you know, after the fifth step, go home and ask myself if I'd been complete mm -hmm. and, go, and then read the sixth and seventh steps and, you know, seventh step prayer and then immediately got into eight. Get back to work. <laughs> Get back to work. Did my list. We went over the list. Mm -hmm. These I can do now. These need some more time, and these, when hell freezes over. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, had, I had one of those. One of those that to do it would injure them further? 
Well, no, that I was so, I was so full of anger and resentment. I had, I felt so wronged by this person. I just wasn't ready. And so that, that old timer, well, she's now an old timer who had said, asked me if I was okay uh, when I went back to that particular room. Uh-huh. She, she would share about how um, she had to become willing to become willing to become willing. Mm-hmm. And so I had, I had one of those wow. on, my, on my eighth step. Uh-huh. So the ninth step, um, as far as making direct amends, I had some things that, yeah, if the person was available wherever I ran into mm-hmm. or whenever, I, I would make amends, but there was there were people I wasn't in contact with and hadn't been for you know years. And with my family, I you know I made living amends. I didn't I didn't take money from them. I didn't you know yes I showed my behind a right. time or two, but what I knew that if I changed my behavior and I changed my attitudes and I just started being more of a part of, and I worked through the resentments, mm-hmm. you know, if I did the work, it would be, it would be better. And now it's better to the point that here I am spending part of my part, because most of my stuff was toward my mother. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah, I had that stuff toward my dad, but you know, he, he was gone. And so I wrote a letter, mm-hmm. you know, that's the best I could do. And with some other people, I wrote letters. Uh, and ironically, the one that I said, when hell freezes over, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, I got a call, somebody, uh, collection agency looking for her. And I was very calm and just said, I, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I haven't had contact with this person in mm-hmm. you know, X number of years, and I don't even know where she's living now. Well, ironically, I got another one of those calls right before this meeting. Before this meeting? Before this meeting today, today. And once again, I was able to say, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Uh, I haven't had contact with that person in over 20 years, and I have no idea where she is. But at this point, if she showed up, if she came in the room right now, mm-hmm. would you be ready to do a, a ninth step? A ninth amendment? step, yes, I would. So sometimes it, it's not about how long it takes for us to do it. It's about the willingness to fulfill the, uh, the obligation of that step right. to actually do it. Right. Yeah, that's beautiful. And you know, it's in it's in my higher powers time, not necessarily mine. But how coincidental that that happens today, <laughs> that, no. and you're telling the story on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. You mentioned earlier, and I like to explore how people got through the steps. But you you mentioned earlier about the resistance to AA because of the God thing, and I want to ask you about God and about your your own spirituality, not just when you first got back to AA, but throughout the years and how that may have changed along the way? Well, you know, uh, my parents weren't churchgoers. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandmother and, my, and then after she passed, my aunt and uncle kind of took over. So I was baptized and confirmed in, in the Episcopal Church. Uh-huh. Um, and at 16, for some reason, you know, I just stood there and I went, I'm saying these words and they don't mean anything to me. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so at 16, I just became a seeker. You know, I just started looking at different belief systems and, uh, you know, I had gone to uh, Catholic girls' school. Mm-hmm. So I knew something about Catholicism, although, you know, I wasn't, I had to go, every Friday we had communion. I was not allowed to have communion because I wasn't Catholic. And I thought, there's something wrong with that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, and then I became eventually, a, you know, a Unitarian Universalist who, you know, <laughs> believe in everything and uh-huh. that's okay. But, you know, the the literature talks about Deep down in every man and woman, there's this there's this idea yeah. of something greater than ourselves. Okay, people call that God. I don't know what it is, but I know it exists. You know, I do believe that there is that power greater than myself that permeates the universe. Hmm. Um, now, I can remember as a kid, we, you know, we spent our summers uh, down on Galveston Bay, mm-hmm. and uh, I loved to go fishing. And I would get up at dawn, and I'd go out on the pier, and that's where I communicated with, and it brought me such peace. So I've always known that there was something that could um, bring me peace and sustain me. Mm-hmm. I just got tangled up in um, being angry at organized religions that were judgmental and condemning and all that kind of stuff. And particularly, I mean, part of my grief with all all of my um, HIV folks was how can you treat your own son the way you're treating? How can you judge your son for being sick? Yeah. You know, and then you call yourself a good Christian. Well, that doesn't fly with me. That must have been really rough to watch on an ongoing basis. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And so I really copped an attitude. And so when I saw God, that was my association of this judgmental, you know, condemning, and you're all a bunch of hypocrites, and I don't want anything to do with it. You got God tangled up in that idea, right? Yeah, I got God tangled up in that idea. And what what shifted was the awareness that, you know, I, I started remembering what it was like as a kid sitting out there and watching the, the world wake up, so mm-hmm. to speak. And, and I love nature and I love the change of seasons mm-hmm. and blah, all that stuff. Sure. So, you know, I, the realization came that God didn't leave me, I left God. Yeah. So I continued to search. And again, always my clue was, you know, this just just didn't working for me. So now I practice Mahayana Buddhism in the lineage of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. I was six years sober and I decided that I really wanted to learn more about prayer and meditation. Mm So there was a, a temple close to me, and I just decided to go, you know, because Buddhists meditate, right? So I'll go check it out, and you know, mm-hmm. one of our teachers from uh, from a monastery in Nepal was teaching, mm-hmm. and it moved my heart. It was so loving. It was so transformative, hmm. and so I 
So I've practiced that since then. Yeah, and the, the great thing about Buddhism is that it does have built right into it. It's got the meditative, you know, mind-body connection to it. It focuses on, it's an inside job. And all of us are potential Buddhas. So just like the program and working to, to live on the basis of spiritual principles you know, on a daily basis, that's mirrored in Buddhism as well. Yeah, our program has so many of those elements, probably unintended whenever it was, but my understanding is that um, in the early days, Bill Wilson had some of the early members of his group in New York that were going to Europe, going to Africa, going to other cultures, and he specifically asked one or more of them, I, I don't know the entire story, I've read a little bit about it, but he asked them to go and find out about those things and come back and report to him what they found. Fascinating. So for the last 13 years, you've been a practitioner of this on a daily basis. So what are some of the things that have occurred in the last 19 years, or maybe in the last 13 years since you found this, this spiritual connection? What are some of the things that you would look at that had you not been as involved in AA, you might not have gotten through? Oh, wow. Um, well, certainly dealing with um, uh, an aging parent yeah. who, you know, is fading. Mm -hmm. And just last week, I lost a sponsee uh, to suicide. Um, what I get to do today is I can feel my feelings around that mm -hmm. and be in acceptance, knowing I don't understand, but I can suit up and show up for the family, I'm, I'm, which I'm going to do. They're having a gathering Thursday night, and mm -hmm. I'm going to go be there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I get to I get to have dinner with my sponsor. Yay! <laughs> That's great. You know, um, and so life is going to come at me, and it's going to you know, and we're in. You know, this is samsara. This is the the this is suffering. Yeah, we're all going to experience it, um, and we all have developed tools to walk through these these dark things. Um, and actually, you know, it just, they just are, and yeah. we're not going to be spared. Drinking is not going to help, ever. Well, that's a marvelous perspective to have. What you just mentioned aligns very nicely with the Buddhist approach to acceptance, and we were just talking about we that talking in, about in, the meeting, in the meeting that you and I were just in just now. Uh, but having that perspective even to the extent that you recognize your your responsibility as the sponsor and as the sponsee and I a lot of days I have to remind myself that that's a sacred duty yeah and and it's the thing that will most assuredly allow me to stay sober and lead an enriched life Right, and something you mentioned earlier about, you know, when I was going to meetings but I wasn't connected with anybody about, you know, not being accountable. Today I'm accountable. 
today, today I'm responsible. Today I'm available mm -hmm. to, to all these people that I wouldn't have been available to before. Hmm. So you're sponsoring women? Yes. Uh, other service work that you're involved in? I do a lot of service work for, well, I'm, I'm still the treasurer of my home group. That's been <laughs> interesting. <laughs> We've been doing this long distance. Yeah. It's worked. You know, it's worked. It's worked just fine. And I also do a lot of service for my Buddhist center. Have you gone back into the profession since you got sober that you had been in? Nope. So that was a chapter of your life that was left behind when you came in. I switched careers. Mm -hmm. um, I became a massage and body work therapist because I've always been fascinated with mind-body and particularly around trauma. Uh-huh. That fits nicely with the Buddhist thing too, doesn't it? It all fits together. So I, I yeah, um, unfortunately, uh, I got carpal tunnel and I have arthritis and I was not able to continue to practice. So mm -hmm. now I'm retired and that gives me the opportunity to be, to do more service work. And I'm grateful for that. Mm -hmm. You know, it gives me the opportunity to do service for, to my family here in Houston. I bet they really appreciate that, too. It's been a wonderful experience, really. I haven't liked everything that's happened. Right. But, you know, I have the program, and I've met you and all these other folks, and so now I'm begin you know, I'm feeling that, that connectedness. Well, there's just something about you. The first time I met you and the first time I heard you share in the, in the meeting that you and I just came out of, Certain people you know are working a good program just by their demeanor when they come in for, to the <laughs> meeting for the first time, you know, from another city or whatever else. I knew the first few words out of your mouth as we exchanged, you know, uh, pleasantries before the meeting. I knew that you were a solid AA member. There was, there was something about it that comes through. Do you ever feel that way when you're around AAs, around other members? Yeah, I do, and I think I'm finally comfortable in my own skin. Uh -huh. I, I'm not fighting anybody or anything anymore. And so I come in, and you know, my first meeting here, I was asked to leave. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> because I'm comfortable enough, and, and I was brought up to, uh, say yes. Yeah. You know, if I could possibly do it, say yes. So that's a great frame of mind to have. Yeah. It's one I, I tell the guys I sponsor and others when I have the opportunity to do so, just because it's nothing gets you out of yourself more rapidly than service work. Yeah. Then working with others and get, yeah. And, and being involved in meetings. And being involved in meetings. So, you know, I sign up to chair on a regular basis, at least at my home group I do. And I, you know, hold a, a, a position there and mm -hmm. greet the newcomers. And I started a women's meeting. It's a spinoff from the LARP. We have a mix, open mixed meeting. Mm -hmm. and. Once a week, the women split off for their own meeting. And That's so, wonderful. you know, it's just, it's great. Looking back over the last several years, Susan, uh, let's say on a scale of one to 10, how would you rate your own peace and satisfaction and serenity? I'd say it's, it's a, it's really gotten up there to a, at least a nine. That's incredible. Yeah, it's been hard work. <laughs> You know, but uh, outside work and AA and spiritual stuff and, you know, all of it. You know, 
when I came in and the promises were read, mm -hmm. the one promise I wanted more than anything was, we will understand the word serenity and we will know peace. That promise has come true for me. That's a wonderful promise too. That's yeah. one of the things that I think everybody tries to aspire to, but there's certain steps that you have to take to achieve that aspiration, aren't there? Yep, there yeah. are. Well, this has just been an, a, a beautiful uh, exchange and conversation that you and I have had. Is there anything else that you'd like to kind of throw in? Because there are gonna be people listening to this maybe all over. Is there anything else that you'd like to add about your own sobriety or your own journey that, that might be useful for somebody to hear? Don't give up. Surrender. Mm -hmm. Do what you're asked to do, even when you don't want to, because some of it I did kicking and screaming. But, you know, in God's hands and with God's, in that trust and a power greater than yourself, miraculous things can come to pass. And those promises do begin to come true. Well, that's a really beautiful way to end this AA Recovery Interviews podcast. I want to thank you for doing this so much. I love you and you've become a really good, strong member very, very quickly in this group. <laughs> thank you. Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Susan D., for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please leave a multi-star rating and review for the show on your podcast app? That'll help others find us. As the number of worldwide listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more people. Of course, you can listen to all of the interviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.